Good evening, everyone. Continuing with our discussion of the Bhagavat Sandarbha of Srila Jiva Goswami, discuss this evening the 49th Anucheta. The Lord's bodily limbs are non-material. As the evidence for this, Jiva Goswami has selected a uh, very interesting verse spoken by Queen Rukmini in relationship to bodies that aren't Krishna, that are material. So there's a little backstory here, and that's provided in uh, ten verses from the tenth canto, sixtieth chapter. We're going to read the English of those verses. They kind of speak for themselves. Um, This is Krishna speaking to Rukmini in a joking way. O Rukmini, many kings were eager eager to marry you, all of whom, all more opulent, handsome, generous, and powerful than me. Indeed, your father betrothed you to Sisupal, who is a great hero and was mad to win your hand in marriage. You rejected all of them, however, and chose to marry me. Why did you make such a mistake? O beautiful one, don't you understand that I reside in the midst of the ocean out of fear for Jarasandha and other powerful enemies? Most dear one, I am not qualified to be king, nor do I know how to behave with the cultured women of royal families. I am a pauper and loved only by those who are like me. Those who have wealth and aristocratic birth generally avoid me. Therefore, O princess of Bismaka, you have made a severe blunder. You heard my so-called glories from beggars who are devoted to me, and owing to short-sightedness you fell in love with me. Still, it is not too late to rectify your mistake. You can still choose some suitable king as your husband. Actually, I really abducted you only to curb the pride of Salva and Sisupal, who were envious of me. Otherwise, I am quite indifferent, having no attraction or attachment for wife, children, and wealth. Rukmini never heard anything like this coming from the mouth of her husband before, and she immediately became an ocean of sorrow, and she fainted at the mere thought of being separated from Krishna. Uh, Krishna became filled with compassion and he caught her and lifted her up, wiped the tears from her eyes and consoled her, admitting that he, uh, he'd only been joking. This took some time to convince her that it was only a joke. Once Rukmini came around, she actually went back over in her mind everything that Krishna had said to her. Step by step, she countered everything that he said in a dialogue with him. The praman, or evidential verse that's used here by Jiva Goswami, is one of a series of verses spoken by Rukmini where she counters everything that he said. 
So if you want to study that dialogue, it's very interesting because she goes step by step everything that he said. She counters it. So the verse that's used for the praman or the evidence by Jiva Goswami uh, in regards to uh, substantiating, substantiating that the Lord's body is transcendental and should never be looked on by material goes like this. Srukmini speaking to Krishna. This human body which is covered with skin, mustaches, nails, and hair on the body and head, and which is filled with flesh, bones, blood, parasites, feces, phlegm, bile, and wind, is a living corpse. Only a foolish woman who has never relished the fragrance of the honey of your lotus feet would serve a husband who has such a body. We should see that the only person that would relish or have a taste uh, for someone in a material body would be, would basically, as she said, be a fool. And we know she is not a foolish woman. So what comes out also here is that the only rasa or taste that any sane person would have in relationship to a material body is one of bibasta, disgust. Jeeva goes, Swami goes forward to cite a verse from the Vaishnav Tosani. It's a tenth chapter, tenth canto commentary on the Srimad Bhagavatam. So in that commentary, there's an interesting comment. If the contents of the body were worn on the outside, one would continuously spend his time warding off dogs and vultures with a stick. So the question arises, how could a woman be attracted to a man's body? And vice versa. And Rukmini answers by Kanta, because she thinks him beautiful and lovable. Further doubt is raised. Everybody is exposed to the various foul odors emanating from the body, so how can it be considered beautiful? And the answer? The answer is that it is due to pronounced bewilderment. Vimudha. This condition is compared to the state of intoxication under the influence of which a man can take pleasure even in lying in a gutter. People relish the fragrance of a lotus flower and abhor the, the fragrance of a corpse. An analogy can be made here uh, that uh, those who've tasted the nectarine pastimes of the Lord or experienced the fragrance of his lotus feet will abhor any fixation with enjoyment of the material body, which is like a living corpse. Jeeva Goswami goes forward now in his Anacheda. He's established the grossness of a material body, a comparison to uh, the spiritual form of the Lord by the quote from Rukmini, and now he further substantiates this viewpoint by 
discussion in regards to the boons received by Hiranyakasipu from Lord Brahma. Here again, he's trying to establish that the Lord's body is not material. So there's a verse in the seventh canto regarding those benedictions. Therefore, Sri Brahma's boon to Hiranyakasipu that he would not be slain by various beings and weapons is also appropriate to consider in this regard. Hiranyakasipu asked, Grant me that I not meet death from any animate or inanimate being, whether Deva, Asura, or a great snake from the lower planet. So the negation here, Jiva points out, is not of the instrument. Now, if you remember back to the last Anucheta, the instrument, Karana, being separate from the from the the agent of action. So we have an agent, and the agent uses uses a device to accomplish something, like an axe. An axe can't do anything by itself. So there has to be an agent of action. Jiva's pointing out here that what Hiranyakasipu's asking for, he's a smart man. He's got a head on his shoulders. He's not talking about the instrument of action. He's not talking about the axe. He's talking about the agent who would wield the axe. So the negation here that Hiranyakasipu is requesting in his, in his, he's requesting this boon, this benediction, is is for the agent of action, that it not be moving or not moving, because that's the context in which this verse is delivered. Secondly, the words animate or inanimate apply strictly to the agent. This is Jiva Goswami. Or in other words, the would-be killer of Hiranyakasipu. In addition, the negation must be of the agent, since if, since if it applied to the instrument, Hiranyakasipu would be susceptible to being killed even by an ordinary being's nails, which are both living and non-living simultaneously. So he said, I don't, want to, I don't want to be killed by anybody that's alive or dead. So Jesus says, Look, look to the, really what's being said here. He's talking about the agent, not the instrument. Because if he was talking about the instrument, any man could kill him with his nails, which are, that fall into that category. They're alive, they came from living, and they're also dead. They are both living and non-living simultaneously. They're growing out, but they're growing out dead matter. They're alive, like your hair is also like that. It's growing out, but it's, it's dead matter. I can cut your hair and you won't say ouch. I can cut your nails and, you know, there's no sensory perception there. So they're both living and dead. Very unique in that regard. 
A living being's nails are lifeless despite being similar to the living body. Since they grow out separately from the organism and can be clipped off. So to corroborate, corroborate um, this conclusion, Jiva Goswami next alludes to the history of Aranyakasipu, who performed great penance to please Sri Brahma. So once he had done his course of austerities and became so powerful simply by austerity. It's a natural result of being austere. You become extremely powerful. Uh, you give up and you get. So he, he attained great power. If we look to that pastime of Aranyakasipu, he stood still and basically in what's the uh, an anthill his whole body was consumed his external body was consumed all that was left was his bones and he was residing in the marrow of his bones so he asked for the benedictions he, he, he captured Brahma's attention he disrupted the universe by his austerities Brahma came and he basically wanted Everything that Brahma had, Brahma's the Brahma is he he resides and is alive for the entire duration of the universe. So who better to ask for eternal life than somebody that, from the material point of view, is, is he's going to live for the entire duration of the universe? So, for all intents and purposes, he's eternal, Brahma. From the materialistic viewpoint, there's he lives, keeps on living. He lives even when the whole universe, except the very, very upper planetary systems, and that's their way up there. There's only three: Mahaloka, Tapaloka, Jnana Loka, and Satyaloka, his planet. Remember, Dhruva's planet is transcendental, so it also continues to exist. When the whole universe is devastated, all the other planetary systems, all 14 divisions of planetary systems, at the end of Brahma's day, they, when he takes rest, they're gone in the, you know, in the ocean. For all intents and purposes, you could say, Brahma's eternal. I mean, we can't, to calculate his life, we can't, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around the time involved in his day. 100 cycles of the four yugas, 10 times the duration of, of Kali Yuga. So 10 times that is, is one cycle of the four yugas. A cycle of the four yugas is four million three hundred twenty thousand years so a thousand times four million three hundred twenty thousand years is Brahma's one day and his night is the same period of time in that day of Brahma there are fourteen Manvantaras or reigns of a Manu. 
So each reign of a Manu is 71 cycles, more or less, of the four Yugas. We're in the 28th cycle of the seventh Manvantara. And during this particular cycle of the four Yugas, once in a day of Brahma, Vaivasvata Manu, you have an advent of Krishna personally, the supreme advents, not like the other avatars because he is the original personality. So once in a day of Brahma he comes. Once in a day of Brahma and there's 365 days in his year and he lives a hundred years. So try to do the math from Ranyakasipu's viewpoint Brahma's eternal. So he wants to be also eternal. He tries to just go for eternal from the onset. Well, I just want to be eternal. Brahma said, well, I can't give you what I don't have myself because at the, at the end of my life, there's death. He made some requests. He didn't want to be killed inside or outside. He didn't want to be killed in the morning or the night. And or the, he didn't want to be killed in the sky or on the earth or in the water. And he didn't want to be killed by any weapon. And he'd already requested what? He didn't want to be killed by any agent, either animate or inanimate. So he tried to cover all his bases. He just didn't figure on Krishna. So amongst all the kinds of beings he protected himself against, Hiranyakasipu included those who have life air, vital force, prawn, and those that do not have life air. So he made this request. Vyasuvir, Sasumadvir, Va. Shijiva Goswami says, that with this statement, Hiranyakasipu intended to deny an agent with such characteristics, not an instrument. He requested not to be killed by any being that either breathes or does not breathe. You'd think he's got it covered. I mean, really. He's done his homework. But he failed, however, to request not to be killed by a being who both breathes and doesn't breathe simultaneously. Such characteristics exist in this trans-conventional being who breathes, but not in the way that ordinary human beings do. His breath, like everything else in relationship to him, is an inherent manifestation of his essential nature. Basically saying the Lord appears to breathe like we breathe and does breathe and does manifest universes, but he's not dependent on breath. He's fully independent. He breathes, but he doesn't breathe because to breathe in the conventional manner would be to be dependent on breath to exist. 
He's not dependent on anything outside of himself to exist. So his breath is inherent and it's a natural manifestation of his existence. So he alone was the exception to the Hiranyakasipu rules for eternity. Jiva goes on to give us a couple quotes from Shruti. Shruti being, again, the Upanishads. Those pronouncements that are apurusheya, that are what? Non-human, coming from the transcendental realm. They apply to all times and all places. Um, so that Shruti say, he is without life, without mind, and pure. These scriptures have appeared from the breath of the great Lord. Jeev goes on to quote from the Varaha Purana, which states, The Lord's form is not material, not composed of fat, marrow, and bone. The all-powerful, infallible Lord has an eternal form, not through mastery of yoga, but because he is that supreme entity, Ishvara, in whom complete potency, authority, and mastery inhere. In other words, he's Ishvara. He's the supreme controller. And it's inherent in him. He didn't have to do yoga to become the Ishvara. He didn't get any of his potencies by performing meditation. A regular yogi can also become extremely powerful. He can get the eight cities. He can become larger than the largest, smaller than the smallest. He can get whatever he wants. Now, just try to conceive of that kind of mystic potency. Whatever you want in the material universe is yours. You can go anywhere just based on your intent. So these eight mystic potencies are, are they're pretty, f pretty far out, pretty, pretty far out. Of course, mastering your mind and senses, that's also pretty far out. It doesn't come without a lot of effort. The point making made by looking at the Raha Purana is the Lord did not have to do anything to have a transcendental body. So now we have, now we're still going, you can see Jiva's building up his case. He's first quoted Rukmini, then he's quoted the prayers of Hiranyakasipu and put them in perspective as far as Hiranyakasipu did cover all the material bases. He didn't leave anything else. He, in essence, gave himself the benediction through his clever requests of Lord Brahma and made himself eternal in his estimation. And materially, his estimation was not wrong. He did it. But there's more than just materially. It's funny. His son tried to tell him that later. And he still it didn't register with him. 
Where's your Lord? I mean, look at me. I'm eternal. No one can kill me. I have such benediction. Bring it on. Where's your Lord? Can't you see? I'm God. I live. I'm eternal. Imagine this. And this is. You imagine the the level of false ego that that this Hiranyakasipu had amassed. He really had a high estimation of himself. Show me your God. Where is he? He's everywhere. I don't see him. Well, maybe you need the eyes to see him. <laughs> is he there? Is he here? And the roar comes from the According to logic, something is considered eternal, Nietzsche, if it is both without beginning and without end. Anadi and Ananta give you Nietzsche. If you have Anadi and you have Ananta, you have Nietzsche. Something without a beginning and without an end is eternal. But Rukmini called human beings, living corpses. Jiva goes on in his Anuchet, the words Jivan Sava, living corpse, mean that the material body is alive solely because of its connection with a conscious being, but of its own is simply a corpse. The Lord's form, on the other hand, being conscious by nature is always alive. The distinction between the two is thus proper. Furthermore, since his form is inherently eternal, blissful, and conscious, the worship of his form is appropriate. The next Anucheda is the 50th Anucheda of the Bhagavat Sandarbha. Jiva Goswami in this Anucheda will reconcile any contradictory statements regarding the name and form of the Lord that come up because people view what they read in Shastra differently. And it all goes back to the, to the original verse that is the core of the whole presentation. Varantita tattva vidas tattvam yajjanam advayam brahmeti paramameti bhagavaniti samjite various transcendentalists view the absolute truth, that non-dual absolute, jana advayam, that non-dual tattva, jnana advayam, differently according to their angle of vision. Some see him as Brahman, some see him as Parabatma, and some see him as Bhagavan. So this Bhagavat Sandarbha is dealing with uh, with a with a, a viewpoint of the supreme absolute from all th- from all those angles of vision. So the Bhagavat Sandarbha is dealing with the the absolute in a general in the in the the all encompassing viewpoints that are there. And then Jiva goes forward and he becomes specific 
Well, the first specific would be Brahmati, but there's no specifics in Brahmati, so there's no necessity for a Sandarbha explaining it. There's no characteristics. But there is are characteristics for Paramatmati and Bhagavan E.T. But the, the concept, just so that we're not confused, the Bhagavat Sandarbha is dealing with all three. Brahmati, Paramatmati, Bhagavan E.T. Subjate. But Jiva Goswami has named his fourth Sandarbha, the Krishna Sandarbha. Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. He's equated Bhagavan, the highest conception of the, the what we would consider the all-encompassing approach to Krishna. But we'll see when we, we begin this next Anucheta in the next class that there is a respect inherent in understanding all three and that it's not that the those that although it may be not be to our liking to look upon the supreme as without form still it's we need to be able to f- fully comprehend that viewpoint to have a comprehensive understanding of the complete whole. So it's not that we dismiss out of hand immediately that concept. We can understand Paramatma and Bhagavan more deeply by understanding the Brahman aspect. Understanding those statements in the scripture he has no hands. He has no legs. To understand those kind of statements that that don't ascribe any attributes to the Supreme, it helps to gain us a deep understanding of the Lord has no involvement with anything material. And we also find that Jiva's already touched upon the significance of the impersonalist viewpoint that God is not a person uh, in the Tattvasandarva in saying that we'll listen, we will listen and I will even quote Sridhar Swami's commentary on the Bhagavatam but I'll do that wherever he's talking about the personal concept, but in his Bhagavatam commentary, he's also put in a lot about the impersonal concept. I'm not going to quote that here. And he's basically saying it was a preaching strategy of Sridhar Swami to put those kind of commentaries, those kind of statements and explanations of various Bhagavatam verses in his complete commentary on the Srimad Bhagavatam. So are there any questions?
Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Thank you.